Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is session one of This Means War, a new weekly podcast series on biblical battles that symbolize contemporary struggles. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. In this first episode, we will examine the battle the children of Israel fought in the wilderness with the Amalekites for the symbolism it holds for modern Christians faced with fighting evil. Then we'll see how other Old and New Testament verses support that symbolism. One important reference for this particular episode is the book Gleanings in Exodus by Arthur W. Pink, and it was published by Moody Press. You may recall that the second of the Old Testament books of the Bible, Exodus, the second of the books of the Jewish law or Torah, opens with the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt, as they had been for several generations, and crying out to God for deliverance. God raises up a leader by the name of Moses, from the tribe of Levi, and he brings him from having been a shepherd in the desert for 40 years after having been raised in Pharaoh's house, reveals himself in a bush that was on fire but was not consumed, tells Moses that he is by name I am, and commands him to go and confront Pharaoh and ask that the children of Israel be released. Pharaoh, of course, refuses to let them go, and so God sends ten different plagues upon the Egyptian people. Then, when Pharaoh does decide to let them go and the people actually leave, he changes his mind and sends an army after them. So, When the children of Israel come to the Red Sea, Moses is commanded by God to stretch out the shepherd's staff he has with him over the water, and the waters depart so they they can go across on dry ground. Then, when the Egyptians try to follow, Moses again stretches out that staff, and the waters fall back into their normal place, and the Egyptians are drowned. Not long after that, the people discover there's really nothing to eat out in the wilderness, and they cry out to God again, and he miraculously provides manna, which is a little piece of bread like a wafer, a perfectly balanced and good-tasting nutrition for the next 40 years. The people go a little further, and by this time we're in the 17th chapter, and they have no water to drink. So God instructs Moses to take that same shepherd's staff and strike a rock, and from the rock gushes water. So that brings us to Exodus 17, verse 8, for the beginning of our story, but this timing and this water gushing from the rock is a very important setting. You know, water typifies salvation many times in scripture, 
And you may recall that Jesus said in John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So with that symbolism in mind, we come to verse 8 of Exodus 17, and apparently word has gotten out for the sparse peoples that are in that area that this group of Israelites has come across water in the desert. So we begin reading, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now this is down the Sinai Peninsula, almost to the place where God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai, but that hasn't happened yet, and they're not quite that far south. Moses said to Joshua, that was his right-hand man, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur, now Hur may have been Moses' nephew or the son of Moses' sister Miriam, Moses, Aaron his brother, and Hur, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi, N-I-S-S-I. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So we have several very important things here that can be seen as symbols for our own struggles with evil today, beginning with the actual identity of the enemy himself. Apparently, Amalek means warlike, and some scholars say that the Amalekites were also descendants of Abraham. You remember Abraham's son was Isaac, and Isaac had fraternal twin boys with his wife Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. Esau was the older brother, but he sold his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob became the progenitor of the Jewish people. But apparently, the Amalekites are thought to have descended from Esau, and they symbolize, according to Jewish tradition, 
evil or spiritual blindness or arrogance or a lack of the fear of God. And in fact, in one place in the Jewish law, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, Moses is writing about the Amalekites retrospectively and writing what God tells him to say. God says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So the enemy had been defeated in a battle, but they were not utterly destroyed yet, but that was on the agenda for the future. Reminds me of Ephesians 6:12, New Testament now, a letter written by Paul. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if we can see the Amalekites in this story as more than just an enemy that lived 3,500 years ago and is no longer relevant, but actually a symbol for our current struggle against a lack of the fear of God and all things that are evil, then this story seems to take on renewed importance and meaning. The second important element of the story is the uplifted hand of Moses. This is apparently a type of prayer. David said in Psalm 28, verse 2, Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Maybe when we pray, we don't always lift up our hands, but it is a common posture for prayer. And in fact, in the New Testament, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So we can see that Moses has this important role to play as Joshua confronts the Amalekites down below as Moses is up there on the hill. And that role is to pray symbolically or to hold his hands up towards God and call on God's help and strength during this confrontation. I wonder if our struggles must be faced against our enemy in two ways. Yes, we must fight the battle, but we must also remember to bathe it constantly in prayer. And speaking of holding up the holy hands, it's also interesting to note that Moses specifically held that shepherd's staff the entire time. 
the staff was the same staff that he had with him when he met with God for the first time out in the desert when he saw a bush that was burning but was not consumed and he went over and the Lord spoke to him from that bush and said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And when Moses was questioning the Lord about his identity and asking the Lord, how could I possibly lead the people of Israel out of bondage? The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? And then he told him to throw that shepherd's staff down on the ground and it became a serpent. When Moses was frightened and withdrew from it, the Lord said, pick it up. And so Moses reached down and picked it up by the tail and it became a staff again. We can see this as a type of the Holy Spirit. It's used to demonstrate the power of God. The power of God was worked through that shepherd's staff. And so could it be that God is asking us to do more when we confront evil than merely say a prayer, but it needs to be a prayer that's prayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to hold a stick today while you're praying, but you do need to pray in the Spirit. A prayer that is prayed mindlessly, sort of on automatic pilot, repeating the same things over and over, saying it in a monotone just to get through it so that you can say you did your prayer for the day, is not what the Lord is after here. I remember Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who at the time was the governor of Jerusalem, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So the battle that Joshua and the men of Israel fought against Amalek wasn't just won because they were strong, healthy men. It was won because Moses held up a symbol of the power of God by his spirit in a prayer stance for the hours that that battle went on. Back to Ephesians 6 again, we read in verse 18 where Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Interesting that he says, praying at all times, and Moses had to hold his hands up the entire time in order for victory to be won on the ground. And it also says, in the spirit. Jude one twenty, the little book right before the end of the New Testament, only one chapter long. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Next, we have the helpers, Aaron and Hur. Now remember, Aaron was Moses' older brother, and he became the high priest after Moses received the instructions about that 
on Mount Sinai a short time later. The high priest was a type of Christ. It symbolized that Christ is our go-between. He is the one who makes it possible for man to come to God. So in the same way, Aaron was the go-between for the Jewish people as they approached God. And so he, a type of Christ, and then her, who was thought to have been the son of Aaron's sister and Moses' sister Miriam, her was partly from the tribe of Levi because his mother was from Levi, but he was also a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Many say that Aaron and her typify Jesus and the Holy Spirit and their role in helping us pray. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's a verse about Christ. And then we get to Romans 8.26, and Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. There are occasional commentaries that say that Moses, in this case, is like Jesus praying for us. But you have to be careful with that type. It doesn't follow because Moses got tired and he couldn't do it on his own and he had to rest. And so it is more fitting to see Moses as a Christian who is interceding for victory as the fighting against evil is going on in real time and is being aided by the intercession of Jesus at the right hand of God and the help from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So here is an additional interpretation of this particular part of the story uh, for your consideration. Perhaps we could see Moses and Aaron and her as a type of corporate prayer. People who call themselves by the name of Christ coming together collectively because one is simply not enough. We get too tired and we can't do it on our own. Then the fifth of the symbols or types in this story is the rock on which Moses had to rest when he became tired. In Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping to verses 6 and 7, we read, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress I will never be shaken. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. So verses 2 and 6 are almost identical. 
Verse 7, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Interesting that he says his soul finds rest, and then he calls God a rock. What's restful about a rock? Well, in this story, we see Moses was so tired of standing there with his arms lifted up. And when someone brought over a rock and he was able to sit, it was the rest he needed to continue. You know, this very passage of Scripture, Exodus 17, with the beginning story about water coming from the rock, was referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, referring to the Israelites, said, They all ate the same spiritual food, you know, the manna, and drank the same spiritual drink, the water that came from the rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So it seems fitting here to see the rock on which Moses had to rest when he was so weary as a type of Christ. Being a Christian and constantly confronting the evils, the temptations, and the spiritual decay that we see in our society is very wearying at times. And especially the continual interceding for the work of the church on the ground. But if we rely on the Lord and our soul finds rest in him, it is a task that is doable. Then the sixth of the symbols from this story is Joshua holding the sword. This is a type of a Christian soldier and the word of God. Back to Ephesians 6, yet once again, we have the passage about the whole armor of God and it starts out, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And it goes on talking about each of the parts of the armor that the soldier is wearing. When you get to verse 17, it says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so can you see Joshua and his men on the ground defending themselves against the Amalekites that have attacked them out of nowhere after they experienced the water that came from the rock. And we can expect that after we come to Christ and experience his marvelous salvation, that we will be attacked by the enemy. And we come against him in the same way that Jesus defeated temptation in the wilderness right before he started his ministry and after he had fasted for 40 days, every time Satan came to him with a temptation, Jesus responded with a passage of scripture. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, or it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And Satan had to flee. And finally, the seventh of the seven symbols in this passage is the name of the altar. What a strange thing. You know, only twice does Scripture record that Moses ever built an altar. 
This is the first of the two occasions. And then after God gave the law in Exodus 24, and the people confirmed the covenant with God, he built another altar. But an altar represents prayer and sacrifice. It is a place of communion with God. It is a way of establishing communication. And so Moses names this place of communication the Lord our banner. Why would you call an altar the Lord our banner or flag? And what does it really mean to have a flag? Is a flag a mere piece of cloth? Is the American flag just a colored cloth with red and white and blue? Or if you fly an American flag over your house, are you saying, I am proud to call myself by this name America, and I associate myself with it? You know, Psalm 64, 60 colon 4, says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. You know, the bow and arrow. And so this flag that he is talking about is a type of the power and presence of God. In the Amplified Bible, Psalm 60, verse 4, says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you with awe-inspired reverence and submissive wonder. A banner to shield them from attack. A banner that may be displayed because of the truth. Well, how is a flag going to shield someone from attack? It's cloth. The flag is a symbol. And so if someone is thinking of attacking you and then they see an American flag over the place where you and your colleagues are dwelling, then they know that you are a part of a group with a great and mighty military force and that you are under the protection of that particular government and it gives them pause. Perhaps you recall the circumstances of the writing of the United States National Anthem. It was towards the end of the War of 1812. It was actually September 14th of 1814 at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland. And Francis Scott Key was an American who happened to be on a British ship because he was supposed to be doing a negotiation. And he penned the words to this as he was anxiously watching after a battle to see if the American flag was still flying because that would signify to him whether the battle had been won or not. He wrote, Or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rockets' red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. In other words, every time a bomb would go off and there would be a flash of fire 
from a rocket. There was enough light to see in the dark that the flag was still waving, and that symbol was what I needed to encourage me. And so we go back to Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, and we say to ourselves, oh, okay, now I get it. I want to call myself by his name. I want to fly his flag over the house of my spirit. I want to be associated with him and expect that my battle will be won because I am backed by all the armies of heaven. And so the bottom line for this story about how Moses prayed and Joshua and his men fought and Amalek was defeated is spiritual battles are won through persevering prayer and the word of God applied to the situation in faith. Remember, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Blessings to you. And if you enjoyed or benefited from this podcast, please pass it along 